10,000 Reasons is one of those songs that's just meant to sing with your eyes closed, I think. Um, but such is the case. Well, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. This is our last uh, sermon in this psalm. And this psalm has been such a blessing to me over the last uh, three weeks. And um, I've had several occasions where I was talking to people and they were going through different, uh, particularly difficult times, and I was able to just remind them of the glories of the psalm and what the Lord um, in his providence has given us in his word that's been absolutely incredible. We'll continue our series in the summer in the psalms um, next week with Psalm 100, and we'll go through a few of the text in that, a wonderful psalm about the worship of the Lord. And remember, the, the whole purpose of us doing this series and the Psalm in the Psalms is that the Psalm really is the medicine chest of the soul. It, it has something for everyone, regardless of what state you're in. Hey, there's some of you, these are the best years of your life, right? You're, you're excited, you're happy about what the Lord's doing in your life. There are Psalms for that. And there's some of us, we're in a season of lament. There's Psalms for that. There's some of us that we're, we're in a valley of decisions. Well, guess what? There's psalms for that. There is a psalm for everyone. There's 150 of them. You could probably find where you are somewhere in the psalms. And so I encourage you um, as a people to go to the psalm to draw deeply from that. All right, if you will, uh, Psalm 23. Let's look at this uh, wonderful uh, psalm together. Our focus will be on verse 5 and 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass will wither, and the flower will fade. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word gives life. And we pray that today your word might give life. Life to the one that does not know you. Life to the Christian who is withering. More life abundantly to those who are overjoyed about uh, where they are spiritually, and who you are. Father, even now, may your spirit be mighty on all of us, that we might see your word and savor it and love it and love Jesus more as a result. Bless us now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Now, if you read verse 5 and 6, um, like, and you say, well, Pastor Dennis, what's going on? There seems to be a disconnect here right? It goes from talking about a shepherd in verse 1 through 4, and then verse 5 and 6 sort of switches. Now, if you've looked at this psalm and you've thought of that, you're not alone. 
There are a lot of interpreters that have looked at this psalm and they wonder, what is going on? Why is it that the Lord is pictured as our great shepherd in verse 1 through 4, then all of a sudden the, the entire psalm changes to where verse 5 and 6 is talking about being seated at a table and, and being goodness and mercy following us. What, what is David doing? Well, here's what David's doing. At least this is what I think David is doing, and, and I think the text actually bears this out. What happens is David is extending the metaphor of the Lord as shepherd from verse 1 through 4 to the scene of the Lord as host, right? And he's doing this in such a way to say, listen, from verse 1 through 4, the Lord is this shepherd that leads us through life. He provides for us. He leads us by still waters. He restores our soul. He leads us down paths of righteousness for his name's sake, right? These are all things that the Lord is doing in the here and now that we can give him glory for. But verse 5 and 6 sort of changes, and now he's talking about heavenly realities. He's talking about eternity. And what David is saying is, look, right now, God is ushering us into eternity. You and I right now are in a, in a state in which we are being prepared for the world to come. Much like a child in the womb, when they're in the womb, they're being prepared for the world to come. Right now, you and I are being prepared for the world to come, eternity. And what I want to do um, in this last sermon series is to show you how God is doing that. And I think it's marvelous. I think it's glorious, actually. And there are two ways that the psalm, or two things I think David brings out in verse 5 and number six, and 5 and 6 that show this. First of all, David shows us how the good shepherd appears, um, prepares us for eternity. And last, he shows how the good shepherd pursues us and brings us into eternity. So how is it that the good shepherd prepares us for eternity? And then, of course, the good shepherd pursues us and brings us into eternity. Now, this is a very un-Presbyterian sermon. It only has two points. Um, usually, it has three points, those of you that have been in Reformed circles. And so, there you go, right? So, only two points. So, let's look at the first one. How is the good shepherd bringing us into eternity? Look at verse number five. David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Now, for the longest, I struggle with this verse because verse number five makes it seem like God is like taunting our enemies, right? Um, it makes it seem as if God is, is, you know, have us before our enemies and our enemies are being taunted, our enemies are being treated badly. But, um, but that's not what's happening in this text. That's not what this text is saying. And interestingly enough, several years ago, I read a book by a scholar. His name is Kenneth Bailey, and it's entitled The Good Shepherd. And it was Kenneth Bailey that really helped me to piece this text together to help me understand. And here's what Kenneth Bailey said. He said, listen, for you to understand what's happening in verse number five, you have to understand a little bit about the culture. And he's a scholar in Old Testament allusion and Old Testament culture. And he says this, in Old Testament culture, the way somebody showed that they were wealthy was not by buying a big house. It was not by buying more land. It was not by buying um, a car, as it were, or lots of horses. The way that you showed that you were wealthy in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East at that time, was to, um, was to throw a big meal. And in fact, the bigger the meal, the better. And, and you see this throughout the Bible. For instance, listen to Solomon. Solomon 
would put on a feast once a day, right? A massive feast. And look at the amount of food that Solomon brought to this feast. He bought 600 um, baskets of seeds, 300 baskets of fine flour, 23 bowls, 20 grass-fed bowls, which I don't know the difference between just regular fat bowls and grass-fed bowls. They tried to look that up. 100 sheep, 100 deer, 100 gazelles, 100 roebucks, and 100 fat birds. All of that was one big feast that he threw on one day. Can you imagine that? And what Solomon would do is Solomon would bring all of these people together in a room, in various rooms, and he would present this massive feast. And, and as he began to feed the people, he would, he would show them his wealth. He would show them the opulence. And that's what David is, is showing here. This is the background behind what David is saying here. What David is saying here is this, that the richness and the glory and the majesty of God is being poured out on display on you and I right now. The greatness of God in terms of his gifts and his manifold blessings upon us are being spread out as it were, as if on a table for the world to see. That right now God is preparing us, his people, by spreading out and lavishing on us, much like how Solomon would lavish his goods upon us. God is lavishing his grace and his mercy upon his people. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. When he, says, when, when, when he says that we were once dead in trespasses, sinners, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. Why did he do this, the Bible says? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what David is saying here. He's saying that right now, you and I are the recipients of the grace and the mercy of God. That right now, God is pouring out his grace and mercy upon his people. And this is the imagery that we have inside here. Notice that, that the Bible says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That God is the one that has prepared these wonderful gifts. What's interesting about this text is that in ancient Near East times, um, the person responsible for preparing the table was uh, the slave. It was the slave that prepared the table. It was the most menial of tasks to prepare the table for um, the guests that were there. And David is saying that it is God himself who prepares the blessings for his people, that he takes notice of his people. Each and every one of you inside here today God takes a special interest in your spiritual development. That God each and every day provides each and everything that you need in an effort to prepare you for eternity. Not only that, he says that it's in the presence of your enemies. In other words, God's sustaining grace in the midst of persecution. We in America are blessed because we don't feel that direct sense of persecution, but our brothers and sisters in other countries certainly do. They certainly do. And when they read a text like this and they come to a text like this, they're reminded that oftentimes they are called to practice their religion in front of enemies. And beloved, I hate to say this because it sounds like a defeatist, but that day might come, and it might come sooner than we realize. 
And we as God's people must be prepared to practice our religion in front of those who despise it and look down on it. And we have to be of a mindset that, we, that God is going to be preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Notice the, the very next thing he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Those are two beautiful imageries. The fact that he anoints our head with oil, that means that God has shown us favor in a tremendous way. You remember when um, Jesus went to the party and there was a woman there, and, and she was a former prostitute, and she, she took this bottle of oil and she broke it and she anointed Jesus. She poured that oil all over him as a sign of her love and devotion and dedication toward him. In the same way, the Bible says that your God pours oil upon us as a sign of how much he loves us and cares for us and how much he desires for us to be part of his covenant community. And then the scripture says that my cup overflows. What's going on there? Well, that's the blessings of the Lord. Are we not a blessed people? Has God not shown that abundantly to us? That such it is that our cup overflows? Absolutely. And all of these signs are meant to be done before the world to show them how costly and extravagant the love of God is. That he has reconciled a people unto himself. Consider the example of the prodigal son. What a beautiful example of God lavishing his grace and mercy on us. In the story of the prodigal son, the Bible says that the prodigal, as he came back, the father saw him from afar off and ran toward him. And you have to understand, in ancient areas, uh, men did not run. That was a sign that, that, you know, he was weak or that was a sign of him being a child. And to see his son coming... He didn't care what the culture said. He didn't care what others might think. He ran toward his son as a sign of love and grace and mercy that his son had come. And what is the first thing he said? Kill the fatted calf. My son has arrived. And he threw a big feast. And at that feast, he began to just lavish his son with all his wealth and riches. And what did the older brother do? He looked on that with uh, and despise that. Well, this is what the scripture is saying here, that there are some, when the Lord pours out his blessing upon his people, will despise that because they don't understand that. How can this good and gracious and loving God show this, this tremendous love toward a people who were once far off from him? And the application of this is that the world is watching us, God's people, as God spreads his mercy and grace on, on top, over us, the world is watching to see how we are responding during this time. I'll never forget, we had a next-door neighbor, and um, we hardly ever saw this next-door neighbor. Uh, in fact, every time I went out to greet him, he would shuffle off inside. He worked late. And I'll never forget, one day we were outside, and he came and started talking to us, and he said, hey, I'd love to invite you all over, but I know that you guys go to church on Sunday morning, and you go to some kind of life group, I think, on Sunday night, and Wednesdays are taken up, and I said, man, this guy worked for the NSA or the FBI? Like, how does he know our schedule, you know? But he knew our schedule. Why? Because he was watching us. He was watching us. You know, he knew that we discipline our children when they get our line. You know, he knew, he knew our patterns. 
And, and I couldn't believe it. That was the first time it dawned on me that people are actually watching us. And without us having to tell him that, he understood that we were Christians. He also knew that we weren't perfect because our kids were always running around, the, you know, running around the streets. But that's beside the point. But the point is, people are watching you. They're watching us. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, they're watching. Even our children, they're watching and they're seeing the way we respond. And they're asking themselves the question, is the gospel that we preach the, the God that we love, are we walking in accordance with what he's saying? Are we evidencing the grace and mercy and this great wealth that was poured out over his people? And God desires that all of us, all of us, bear the fruits of this great, rich love and grace that he has for us. You might be asking, Pastor Dennis, how do I do that? How do I evidence that? That's so hard to do. Well, I think this text points us to how we do that. Notice the passive nature in which we receive God's word and we receive his blessings. Notice he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice, you can read through this whole psalm. There's no hint of struggle by the sheep or the one at the table. He's not resisting God's leading. He's not resisting the fact that God has prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies. He doesn't resist or she doesn't resist in verse number four to be led down those valleys of the shadow of death. And so here's the point, beloved, when God begins to spread his richness and grace and mercy toward his people, you and I should not be in a state of resistance. We should not resist the work of God in our lives, and so often we do by complaining. So often we do by not allowing God to do the complete work of grace in our lives, by constantly resisting him and resisting the will that he has for us. And resistance happens. I can think of specific times in my life where I've resisted the will of God and not done what the things that I was supposed to. And because of that, I was punished. And the, our posture towards God and his loving, shepherding uh, desire for his people is just simply submission. Not resisting the work that he has for us. Notice the second point here. Not only does God show us how he leads us um, and directs us, but also how the good shepherd is pursuing us and bringing us into eternity. Notice verse number uh, six. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now the concept of goodness by David here is the goodness in the sense that God has lavished his mercy upon us, his, his peace, his joy, his happiness, our daily bread. All of those things are seen by the goodness of the Lord. But secondly, his mercy is his covenantal love of grace that he has poured out for us. And I remember uh, growing up in church, we used to sing a song, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And whenever I thought of goodness and mercy, I always thought of it like thing one and thing two, you know, uh, from Dr. Zeus. That's running behind us and like putting blessings all over us. But that's not the imagery that uh, David is going after. 
The term follow here, follow me, is actually the word for pursue. And what the word of God is saying is that the blessings of the Lord here pursue after us like the hound of heaven. That God is in hot pursuit of his people. That his goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives in the sense that God is constantly working in our lives to bring about the good. And by the way, it's not always in just the big things in our life. I remember as, as a child hearing people's testimonies. And there would always be these extravagant testimonies. You know, God saved me out of a gunfire when I was running drugs. Or, you know, or something completely fantastic. I, you know, I was on drugs and for 20 years and I lost my life a million times or whatever. And, and you look at that and you think, man, what? I guess the, the work of grace is really strong in their life. But what about me? I mean, I didn't really have a testimony like that. And I always thought, I, I, I always thought to myself, how is the goodness and mercy of God overflowing on me? Until one day I heard a story. And it was, it was just the most incredible story I'd ever heard. So I was, um, I think I was reading this. But it talked about Dr. Witherspoon. And Dr. Witherspoon was the president of um, the College of New Jersey, later became the College of Princeton. And he talked about this idea of providence. And this is what he said. He said, one day he was at his desk and he was doing some work. And, um, and one of his neighbors bust in, and he said, Dr. Witherspoon, Dr. Witherspoon, I have this great story to tell you of an act of God's providence. And you know Dr. Witherspoon, he was, he was Scottish, so he's like really reserved. He's like, calm down. And, um, and he said, well, why don't you tell me what's going on? And apparently there was this ravine that they would go around, or this, uh, this hill that they would go around. And he said, as I was going around this hill, my horse and buggy uh, slipped and, and fell, and I almost perished, and I jumped out, and the Lord saved me. Isn't that a great act of God's providence? And, and Dr. Witherspoon looked at him and he said, yes, that is a great act of God's providence. But the greater act of God's providence is for the past 20 years I've gone around that bend and nothing has ever happened to me. He said, that's the greatest act of God's providence. Young people, I hope your story is that you grow up in a godly home, you serve the Lord, and you carry on the traditions and the teachings of this book. Because that's the greater story. Because if you think about our world and you think about all the pitfalls and all the sin that you and I can fall into, it amazes me right now that I'm not on the side of the road in a ditch somewhere. Right? Why? Because God's goodness and mercy is following us. Remember, the scripture says that we should pray. And we should pursue our religion. Why? So that we can live a quiet and peaceable life. Not to be saved from drug overdoses or gang violence. Like the, the mercy and goodness of God is poured out on his people so that we can live quiet, peaceable, godly lives. Don't, don't pursue the fantastic testimonies. If that happens, praise God. But to Witherspoon's point, the goodness and mercy of the Lord is seen in the everyday of waking up, reading the scriptures, praying, feeding your children, clothing them, sending them to school, you showing up at work and doing a good job. That's how we see the goodness and mercy of the Lord daily in our lives. That's not boring. That's not mundane. That is the goodness and mercy of the Lord pursuing you for his good. And we often look at that and say, well, you know, that's, that's just boring living. No, that's Holy Spirit living. 
That's the goodness of the Lord living. And why does this goodness and mercy pursue us all the days of our life? Notice the very end. He says, so that we are, and, shall, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the goal of the goodness and mercy of the Lord. That we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That we have a place and a home in heaven. I recently read a story by, uh, of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Just before his death, he couldn't speak. And he indicated on a piece of paper that he didn't want any more prayers for his recovery. And this is what he wrote. He said, don't hold me back from glory. Because he was ready to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Some 39 years later, Charles Marr whispered to David Marr. And he said something to the effect that I'm ready to go home. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Moore, both of these men understood that they were born for eternity. And for the Christian and for them, they understood that they were meant to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And both of those men saw the goodness and the grace of the Lord, that he had prepared a table before them, that he had anointed their head with oil, that their cup overflowed, and they saw that goodness and mercy had followed them all the days of their life, and that they were ready to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the question for us inside here today is, are we ready for the same? Are we ready before God to say, Lord, I am ready when my time comes to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Or are we still enamored with this world? Beloved, you were made for eternity. And God indeed has given you all things to prepare you for it. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace and mercy. Thank you that it is poured out among your people. And thank you it pursues after us to bring us into glory. Bless us now, your people, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Please stand.